You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Isaac Thelman. Isaac's debut novel, The Breath of the Sun, won the 2019 Lambda Literary Award for LGBT science fiction, fantasy, and horror. We're talking today about his second novel, Dead Collections, which was published by Penguin Random House earlier this year. It follows Saul, who works, like Isaac, as an archivist at a queer historical society in San Francisco, and who, presumably unlike Isaac, is also a vampire. It's a delightful story about love, grief, and the ways we hide our truest selves for the world to fit in. Isaac Fellman, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. I read this book, I guess it's been a couple months now, and just fell in love with it right away. Um, I interviewed Calvin Kosulke earlier in the year, and uh, he gave me a big list of recommendations, and this is the first one that I picked up, which is a real testament to his taste. So <laughs> I wanted to start by just asking you a bit about the name of the book, Dead Collections. Where does it come from and what does it evoke for you? The book, uh, as as with so many books, uh, does not have its original working title, uh, which was The Donor. Um, I love puns, which is unfortunately the reason, well, I don't know, I'm happy being an archivist. One of the many reasons I'm no longer a freelance copywriter is that I can never get people on board with my puns. Uh, <laughs> Dead Collections is uh, it's something that my agent came up with. I didn't really want the book to have archives in the title because I feel like it's a small thing, but archives has become a fantasy word. Uh, people tend to expect the archives to be supernatural in a way that the archives in this book are not supernatural, even though the archives in this book are totally supernatural. <laughs> I wanted something that would evoke maybe something a little bit more present day and more recent, similar to the archival collections that I've typically worked with, which are no more than 50 years old, mostly. I th- I think, you know, a big part of this book is, is, of course, that it centers around a reluctant vampire. Um, and I think the vast majority of the vampires in this book have a kind of reluctance to them. But when we think about vampires, it's it's similar, right? Like there's this like fantasy trope of vampires like Dracula or Lestat or the Cullens who are old money with all the sort of class trappings they're in. And the vampires in your book are much more working class. They struggle with things like finding work and housing and other sort of survival basics. And integrating into society is, is kind of like a pipe dream for them. So I'm interested why, why you took that approach and, and what was interesting to you about that other side, uh, that other potential way of viewing vampires. I am always just interested in inconvenience. I was also, someone was interviewing me via email the other day and it made me think a lot, one of the questions that they asked about embarrassment. I'm also really interested in embarrassment as a writer, because a moment when we blush with embarrassment is a moment when we feel something new or something we're not used to or something we won't let ourselves get used to that we won't let ourselves think about. So, uh, yeah, I'm just always going to go for the most embarrassing thing as a writer. Not not like humiliating thing, like not like a cringy thing that's going to make my audience just go, oh, Christ because that's not the guy that I am either. But um, I, I, uh, I sort of see embarrassment and um, the struggle to get through the world in, in, through a world that doesn't accommodate you as, uh, as two sides of the same thing, because they are both just sort of about struggling to learn to live with discomfort. I will not say that I will never write a book about wealthy people. Some of the characters in the manuscript that I'm writing right now are, are doing quite well. And it ends up being 
you know, about an interclass romance. It's a sea story, so you've got to have one of those. <laughs> but I, I mean, it also just has to do with the fact that it's important to me to write about disability and to see disability as a normal experience that anyone can have and a lot of people do have who don't expect it. So again, it's that struggle to get your way through a life and through a world that does not put your needs first and that has rendered you in many ways more disabled than you need to be through not accommodating your needs and caring. So um, that's what uh, was on my mind when I was thinking about how to uh, how to place Saul in terms of class. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I liked a couple things that you said in that. Um, and one thing I want to dig into more is, is this understanding of disability as an experience that anyone can have. You know that my dad recently died because we we talked about it in terms of rescheduling. Um, he died of a disease called multiple system atrophy, which essentially shut your body, your various sort of autonomic systems in your body shut down by one by one. And so it is a disease that's very disabling. And for him as somebody who had been able-bodied his entire life until the last seven years, right, was very much a surprise. And so I think for me too, witnessing that, I saw, right, like, I think we all went from the situation where the world was basically accommodating us and accommodating him to seeing all of the ways, one by one, that the world doesn't accommodate people with disability or with any kind of, anything that doesn't quite fit the sort of standard issue mold. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I think that's really interesting, and I'm curious where that comes from for you. I'm never sure if I identify it as, as a disabled person. Uh, I have OCD. I have mental illness. I still basically feel like the world is designed for me. Sometimes I find the world really uncomfortable and difficult. But when I have needed to seek help for my OCD, I've basically managed to receive it. And generally, I think that people understand the need for mental health care, at least in that it's something that work needs to give you time to do and uh, that they know not to ask about. But at, at the same time, uh, I've always been close to people who are in the disability community and who do academic disability studies. But when, once these thoughts uh, start going into your brain, once, once the first person tells you the 101 truisms of disability studies, it is society, not the body that makes a person disabled. You shouldn't mm -hmm. assume that disabled people don't fuck and don't have experiences mm -hmm. if they want to have them. Other people do. You, you shouldn't assume that, uh, like, like, don't assume anything about a person because of a detail of their body that you can observe or about what you think is a detail about their personality that seems to expose something about them. Everybody deserves privacy. You know, these are really basic tenets yeah. of being a nice person. But, you know, I needed to be told them because uh, we're not educated about disability when we are young, I don't think, unless we experience it ourselves. So. It was. It just seemed a very natural way to think about Saul as a person who is a vampire. It seemed more. It seemed more natural than not to think about it in terms of chronic illness and sort of the uh, the grind of inconvenience and the fact that he um, he doesn't really have a home. He lives at work, uh, which creates its own set of problems that are ultimately very disastrous for him. Because in the summertime, he would have to just get up at two in the morning and go to work and be afraid all the time while he's traveling to work. He can only be outside in the dark. It also makes him very suited to be an archivist because archives usually have a lack of natural light. So it is a stroke in some ways of good fortune that he already had this existing job where 
he would never be expected to go outside because archival documents and other materials have really similar needs to vampires. They cannot be exposed to very much sun or very much light. They're very fragile. It gives him a, uh, a natural sympathy for the work of archiving and the materials under his care because uh, he has a lot of the same things to be afraid of. I know that this has been kind of a rambling answer, but okay. it was, um, it, I, the, the things just all came together. Uh, these are all things that I'm interested in and always thinking about. Yeah, well, and I mean, I, I, I hear that coming together too, right? Like that sort of interest and inconvenience, I also have OCD and I feel like one of the things that we sort of learn in trying to manage OCD is that the way you do it is by going toward things that are really uncomfortable and scary and sometimes make you feel like a horrible person, right? Like you just sort of have to veer in the direction of those things. And so I feel like I innately understand why you would be interested in inconvenience and embarrassment because that's so much part of the makeup. But it also is, like you said, it's intertwined with that experience of disability, right? Like disability is constantly inconvenient because the world is, it makes it inconvenient. It is set up for the convenience of everybody except for you. And it, it just, it creates that sort of class dichotomy almost. Yeah, it's interesting to think about OCD in relationship. Yes, it's a class thing, but OCD in relationship to uh, uh, to lack of accommodation because right as as you were saying, the thing that you're supposed to do for OCD is not accommodate it. Yeah. And uh, it, it's just sometimes that it's just very hard. You're supposed to deliberately think thoughts that make you uncomfortable. You're supposed to deliberately do actions that make you uncomfortable. It, it's it's a funny thing. I, I was a suicide hotline volunteer for a long time. And my first day, I, I had mentioned that I had OCD during training. And someone made a point of giving me materials to sterilize my desk before I sat down for my uh, first shift. And I remember, you know, sort of politely going, oh, sure, thank you. I will sterilize my desk. While also thinking, number one, I'm I'm not that much of a sterilization guy. Yeah. <laughs> that is not really my brand of OCD. And, and also, this is maybe the one thing in the world that I don't want you to accommodate because it will not be good for my mental health. I need constant exposure. So yeah, it's uh, it's just all about asking what somebody needs while not making them constantly explain their condition to you in all of its excruciating detail. Yeah, and I think it frequently comes from a place of um, of a very good intent, right? Like <laughs> trying not to embarrass you or trying right. not to like put you like put you up against something that might cause you to freak out. And I get that, but please don't do that for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I think what that sort of leads into for me is that there's, a, you know, the Hannah Arendt banality of evil mm-hmm. sort of. So she was writing about um, the Nuremberg trials and she was writing about how there were essentially all these bureaucrats within the Nazis who uh, carried out these sort of individual pieces of things that killed millions of Jews that, you know, were responsible for genocide and for some of the biggest horrors that we know of um, in our history. And I, I got that sort of sense from a lot of what Saul faces in this book, right? Like that there's all these supernatural elements in dead collections, but the big bad isn't a vampire slayer or like an evil wizard. It's HR and medical, medical bureaucracy. So what can you tell me about that? This is 
one of the many examples of uh, feeling like I am basically a person that the world was set up for. You know, certainly I am a trans person, but I am in a various positions of privilege. Uh, I have actually had routinely good experiences with HR. Uh, when I came out on the job at the California Historical Society, I asked HR to send out a nice neutral email to the rest of the staff, like just sort of announcing my new name and pronouns so I didn't need to tell everybody and people I didn't know. And they they sent an email that was more suitable for like announcing the birth of a baby boy. They were so <laughs> excited at, at, I think, getting to use this aspect of their training. But, uh, you know, I do also think a lot about how things can go so wrong at work. And when they do, you are stuck there. You are trapped there. And it is very hard to work your way out of the reality that has been imposed upon you if HR does not mean you well. And it was also very easy for me to put my mind in the mind of the HR person in this book, uh, who I have really tried to make sympathetic. Uh, I think that she just is there to protect the company. You know, as, as they always say, that is what HR is for. And she, once she finds out that Saul is living at work, he can't live at work anymore. And when there is a conflict between two employees, one of which, one of whom is a trans person and another of whom is a cis person who is being transphobic to him, but in ways that don't necessarily read from the outside because a lot of them are based in uh, describing her own experience as a person who has thought about her gender and decided that she's not trans. Uh, but who has described that experience to Saul in a way that really invalidates him and makes him feel guilty and responsible for the fact that there are people who are in trans in the world who are made uncomfortable by his presence. I can see how from the outside, if you're not familiar with how this kind of story goes, you really would look at it and say, well, you know, they said, they said, it's, it's ambiguous and I need to just sort of negotiate between these two. Uh, whereas in fact, it is... Um, you know, something where Saul is human and he's valuable and he makes mistakes and he he definitely, you know, does not conduct himself especially well at work. He is not, an, I would say, a great employee. But also this conflict is between a person who is of a protected class that the other person doesn't share. So it's a rough situation. And I think that from the outside, it looks more ambiguous than it looks from the inside between these two. Uh, they are largely, in fact, left to themselves to deal with all of the things that are difficult between them in a way that it would actually be really helpful if someone could help mediate. Yeah. And I mean, I think that brings home how how much this problem, which is systemic in a lot of ways, which has structural roots, gets individualized, right? Like it it, it gets boiled down to interpersonal conflict rather than being the sort of rather than being seen in that sort of broader context. And I think another thing which that situation brings up is that as a as a vampire, as you said, Saul uh, can't be exposed to light, right? He, you mentioned him having to get up at like 2 a.m. during parts of the year to commute into work, and that's not tenable. And so I think this is an experience that a lot of people in the disability community have, which is there's accommodation until you run up against something where the accommodation is is genuinely inconvenient to the workplace or... It, not even to workplaces, but to restaurants or to, right, like any of the other sort of public places that we spend our time in. Right. Everyone would love to help until it costs money. Yeah. <laughs> until it costs money or until it would slow things down or, right, like, yeah. <laughs> until it means you can't 
proceed along the path that you've always proceeded along uninterrupted. Yeah. I was also interested, I mean, fandom plays a, a pretty significant role in dead collections, though it's worth noting that neither Saul nor Elsie, who is his love interest and archival benefactor, the donor of the original title, neither of them is actively engaged in fandom in the novel's present day. You said elsewhere that fandom serves as both a way to imagine things that feel impossible, like transition, and a way to avoid them or create distance between those things and ourselves. Could you expand on that? Sure. I suppose the thing is that there's no universal experience of fandom. There is only one's own experience of fandom. There are certainly tropes that come and go in experiences of fandom, good and bad, ambiguous, you know, neutral. My own history, I definitely know that I have served some time uh, using, imagining the, the stories of queer men. I have definitely used that to examine and at the same time simultaneously not examine my own experiences, my own desires, my own feelings about my gender. I, I transitioned when I was 36, and I did so fairly soon after deciding that I was going to transition and that I wanted to. I went through therapy for a while, but so much of my therapy for trans stuff was about my therapist patiently getting me to admit in a completely consensual way, right? The very obvious thing that I was not talking about, that I was talking around, that I was avoiding thinking about for many, many years. You know, it's a funny thing. I uh, I wrote this book at maybe the most anti-fandom phase of my life because I had been out as a trans person for about a year. I saw very clearly some of the ways that I had used my relationship with fandom to put off thinking about this and to live it in fantasy rather than in reality. And I also, you know, I'd had some rough experiences in fandom. I think that it has changed quite a bit recently. Uh, there used to be such an intense uh, secrecy within fandom, such an intense anxiety about anybody outside the fandom knowing uh, that you participate in this. Many people still feel this way. Uh, I don't. I am I am back in fandom. I continue to participate in Welcome. it. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. Um, I have found a small friendly fandom that has a lot of wide ranging intellectual interests that can branch off of it. And I have chosen to basically be out to everybody there about exactly who I am in real life. It's kind of been the only way to make fandom not intensely crazy making for me because I don't want to be worrying about that secret. And I don't want that secret to, you know, make me pray to bad actors because we all share a secret. And that's just a great way to introduce bad actors into one's life. <laughs> so I, I, I'm very curious about the relationships that my characters will have with fandom uh, after the book is over. Will they come back to it the way that I did? Both of them are kind of out of it for different reasons. I think Saul for very similar reasons to the ones that, the, the reasons that I was out of it. And Elsie, uh, because, you know, <laughs> they met and married the creator of the show that they were obsessed with, uh, which was immensely destructive for their life and development, even though, you know, the marriage wasn't overtly abusive. It wasn't overtly quote unquote bad. It was just deeply wrong for both people involved. And so it's, it's hard to think about going back to a simple experience with fandom and a joyous experience with it after that, but we'll, we'll see. They both got a lot of life to live. Uh, you know, they're only 40 something. Soul could live you know, for another few years, or he could live another hundred years. It's unclear what his ultimate fate will be. 
Um, a lot of it depends on how he can negotiate the fragility of being a vampire, which is, you know, obviously quite dangerous. Join KSQD every Sunday night at 10 for the Evil Eye radio program with host Forrest Reed. It's a unique exploration of Yiddish folklore, Jewish mysticism, and Kabbalah. Folk tales, superstitions, and wisdom are interwoven with atmospheric music. That's Sunday nights at 10, here on KSquid 90.7 FM and online at ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author and archivist Isaac Fellman, whose novel Dead Collections follows a transmasculine archivist who also happens to be a vampire. So on a slightly different tack, the last year, last few years have unleashed quite a few books, both fiction and nonfiction, involving queer awakenings in the archives. So the other big example that springs to my mind is Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. I don't know if you've read that, but it's about her experience as an archive, discovering all these letters from Carson McCullers and realizing that she was in fact gay and then realizing, Jen Chaplin realizing that she was in fact gay. But you're an archivist. What is it about the archives that makes them such fruitful settings for this kind of self-discovery, in your opinion? A couple of things come to mind. Because uh, it's okay that you said this in the intro. Uh, It's fine. But uh, the the archives where Saul works is not actually queer-focused in the same way that mine is queer-focused. I work at a queer historical society. Saul just works at a generic archives in San Francisco that inevitably has a lot of queer stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's important to uh, mention that that is part of his experience because it means that finding queerness in the archives is going to itself be a discovery for him in a way that it's not at my work where it is mm-hmm. the sort of the, the background sound. Um, I don't want to say the static, it's a much more beautiful sound, but uh, still the the music that he can no longer hear or or that I can no longer hear rather because it's just been playing for so long. Um, he gets to have the experience of realizing like, oh, oh my God, you know, Harold, they're lesbians or what have you. <laughs> I think that's how the meme, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very old person, but I, uh, I'm not sure who Harold is or why they're lesbians, but I know of the meme. But even if you do expect to find queerness in the archives, they are a wonderful place for queer self-discovery because you will find your experience of queerness reflected in unexpected ways. I have definitely had moments as an archivist where I, you know, I'll just I'll just talk about Lou Sullivan. Why not? Uh, my experience with Lou Sullivan's diaries, he was he was the gay and uh, trans uh, diarist and writer and historian. Um, I like to mention that he was an amateur historian. I have had other people complain to me about that because uh, they feel that I am, you know, pointing out that he doesn't have bona fides. For me, what interests me about Lou as an amateur is that he, precisely that he doesn't have bona fides, that he was doing queer history outside of the academy at a time Mm. when the academy was very unforgiving to people wanting to do queer history. And when you sort of had this difficult choice of whether to do it with no funding, with no support, and with no expectation of credibility as a historian, or attempting to break into the academy the way, for example, Susan Stryker was doing, He chose to do it from the outside for a variety of reasons, not all of which I I must say were choices. You know, by the time he became a historian, he was already ill with with AIDS, which would kill him at the age of 39. You know, he had already gone through the period of one's life when it might be reasonable to go back to school, uh, even if you were not ill. So Lou's experience, my experience with working with Lou's materials 
at the GLBT Historical Society is often one of alienation and difference. It is very often recognizing like, wow, they gave you a huge shot of testosterone at the time. Uh, your experiences with and desires for medical transition are informed by a different culture of medical transition than we have today. Uh, your, your experiences as like a, a gay trans man are really d- different from mine as, you know, like a complexly bisexual trans man. And uh, certainly trying to break down medical boundaries to people who really strongly identified as gay transitioning, those were different to mine. But nonetheless, uh, the ways that he had these experiences with doing community uh, community orgasming, although he did (laughs) lots of that too, God bless, Um, community organizing among trans people. You can read the newsletter of the organization that he founded, uh, FTM, now known as FTM Mm -hmm. International, and just find like all of the like uh, the cultural conflicts that you still find among trans people, where Mm -hmm. uh, people who aren't interested in interested in doing some medical stuff, and people who are interested in those things uh, are in conflict and feel invalidated by by each other. Uh, You see people sharing memes. Uh, My favorite is always that there's a fish. It's a tropical fish. It's the colors of the trans flag. It naturally changes, uh, its sexual equipment changes and evolves over its life. I still see this fish exchanged as a trans meme and people are talking about it in these trans newsletters from the 80s. So the the thing about discovering yourself in archives as a queer person, it's in the little stuff. It's in, oh God, every generation rediscovers that damn fish. (laughs) Every generation fights about the same stuff. What we have called our desires changes uh, the way the sort of expected course that those desires take definitely changes what so many things change. But the recognition that we feel in nature and in each other, that is uh, ahistorical. Um, I would really go so far as to say so much of that stuff. You, you know, you read the diaries of Ann Lister and she's talking about recognizable lesbian drama in the era of Jane Austen. <laughs> it is like an L word chart in those diaries. You know, yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's it's uh, it's all that. Yeah. So yeah, I think that the archives, because they are focused on the petty details of people's lives, far more than they are focused on, you know, the the lives of the rich and famous. They they definitely are disproportionately represented in archives. Uh, I I will say, the more marginalized you get, the less likely you are to show up in the archival record. That is a complicated and ambiguous thing. Um, sorry not to go on for too long, but I've been thinking a lot about the historian Jules Gill-Peterson and her recent assertion that sometimes when trans people don't show up in archives, it is a triumph because it means that those people have evaded systems of medical and legal control. So sometimes not being in the archives means a lot of different things. That makes me think of uh, Carmen Maria Machado's uh, discussion of queer archival silence in um, in the Dream House in her memoir. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, God, I wish I remembered that better because I know that she made some really thoughtful points about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I also it's been a few years since I read it, but uh, my memory is that a lot of it was about the sort of absence of discussions of domestic violence in queer circles, mm-hmm. um, and sort of that silence being related to uh, the desire to fit in and to assimilate, you know, sneak under the radar of society. But yeah, I mean, I I think that's all really interesting. 
and I mean, pretty clearly working as an archivist has had an impact on your fiction. I mean, you're writing about the archives oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in, I think, very thoughtful ways and in ways that, like, I think one of the things I'm most impressed about in Dead Collections is how you have all of these different threads of, like, talking about archives, talking about fandom, talking about vampirism, and they all sort of weave together these same stories about getting closer to something and distancing yourself from it at that same time, that like cycle of, of distancing yeah. and, um, and closeness. But I'm curious too, how writing fiction and particularly fiction about archives has influenced the way that you think about archival work. It's interesting. Yeah. People don't tend to ask me how it goes the other way. I think that it has just made me aware of the extent to which archival work is about storytelling. And it has made me a little bit more careful about the stories that I tell. Uh, Saul, at one point in this book, uh, writes a finding aid, which is a standard uh, format archival document that's sort of an essay-style catalog entry. It has uh, like multi-paragraph brief essays about who a person was or an organization was and what they did and what you find in this collection to define and sum up sort of what that work was and, and what has made it itself its way into the archival record uh, both accidentally and deliberately. I think a lot about the finding aid as a short story or even as uh, a poem. It is, uh, it really is a form of storytelling. It's a way for the archivist to tell the researcher who might be trying to figure out whether they want to take a trip of thousands of miles, whether they want to take an international trip to come and see something. You're telling them why you think this is interesting and what you think that it might have to offer their research. The tricky thing about it also is that archives have so many paths through them. They are not linear. They are very much a choose-your-own-adventure. They are very much a pack of tarot cards. You can Even the order in which you experience a collection profoundly influences what you perceive that collection to be about. So archivists have a lot of power that we uh, sort of need to admit that we have to determine these stories that historians will tell even before the historians get into the room. I think that writing fiction is a very freeing way to interact with archives because it's a way to say, without that professional hat on, here is what I think a story is about. Um, The manuscript that I'm writing now is centered on some historical letters that are reproduced in full in the book because that's the kind of nerd that I am. (laughs) And they are very much also about my narrator's experience reading the letters and thinking about what they mean. Since the letters are made up and he is made up, I get to decide the meaning of that archive in every detail. And that's really satisfying because writing fiction has reminded me that that is something that by no means should I do professionally. (laughs) Archivists are always sort of struggling between definitely not mistaking ourselves for objective people, but also definitely not taking a really strong stance about what makes something interesting and what it's about in ways that introduce all of our terrible biases. So. Yeah. In conclusion, archives are, uh, they are a, a puzzle that you cannot solve because it is impossible to hold those things in tension permanently. But definitely being a writer has made me far more aware of that tension and given me some helpful thoughts on how I personally answer those questions. Well, that seems like a good place for us to to pause our discussion and have you read a little bit from your book. Sure. Um, before you do, could you just set up for us what we're going to hear? Yes. I decided to just, I, I like the beginning of this book a lot, and I have done it before at readings. 
And uh, for some reason, my agent and my editor and the general public have all allowed me to begin this book with like a commentary on what archives mean <laughs> as they relate to the body. And since I was allowed to do that, um, I'm going to continue doing it at every possible occasion. Well, and I think this is very well-timed, given we we're just talking about the archives for 10 minutes. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is just the beginning. When I was training to become an archivist, my mentor told me, a thing is just a slow event. The line wasn't hers, but it struck me with the needle prick of originality. A slow event. A person is that too, an event 70 or 80 years long. It's very complex, hundreds of systems, iron and nitrogen and oxygen, blood flowing into blood. This story is a mystery of sorts, although most mysteries begin with a dead body. That's a thing whose event is nearly done, with its last climax is soon to come. The dead body is always pretty rude. It comes into your life and reminds you of the joke at the end. It ruins your appetite, it ruins your day. There are no dead bodies in archives, except maybe for mine. Oh, sometimes there are ashes, and a few times bones, and there's often quite a lot of hair, but in general, what you find in archives is the absence of a body, the chalk outline of a life, crowded all around with papers and artifacts and ephemera, but with a terribly small hollowness within. You can almost taste the closeness of the body sometimes, almost feel the glossy heat of it, but never quite. It's cold in the archives, and there's nobody there. I belong in the archives. I am cold, too. As that day began, I was soaking my hands in hot water until they got warm enough for me to shake someone else's. I jammed one and then the other into my styrofoam cup, and with the hand that wasn't soaking, I kept trying and failing to get my phone to acknowledge my fingerprint. When it's warm enough for the button to work, that's how I know it's warm enough for a handshake. Plus, I wanted to read my phone. I didn't see myself as being in the closet about my illness, my vampirism, but I'd only ever told my boss in HR. As for telling visitors that felt too private to explain, especially early in the morning in a room where the guests aren't even allowed coffee. So I give them a mock-up of life, immersing my hands in the water until they took on its warmth like rubber does and putting on gloves when I handled photographs in front of visitors, although my fingers make no prints. My coworkers also didn't know that I lived down here and for that matter, neither did HR. There was a couch in my office where I would sometimes lie down for what passes for my sleep there was a vivid network of bars, all-night coffee shops, and wet, sugary streets in which I could take my greedy sips of fresh air at night. I do drink, you see, and I do breathe. And I can eat if I want, but only the strongest foods make any impression on my burned-out taste buds, and of course, none of them nourish me. They tend to be the preserved foods. Strong kimchi, pungent cheese, ultra-sweet jams and jellies. I'm all about preservation. I never meant to become such a walking stereotype, but I love my work. Someday, I will write all this down. For now, I prefer it in my head, where it's mutable and fresh as clay. I prefer to remember this story between one bright moment and the next of an increasingly crowded life. It's not an old story yet, and I am still figuring out what it means. I used to be an archivist at the Historical Society of Northern California. The society is in the basement of a building on Market Street, a basement whose generous toilet was always on the edge of overflowing and which had mice, but not rats. The rooms were really designed to be storerooms. I had an office by virtue of my seniority, which was just off the main workroom and 50 feet from the vault. The director's office was next door. She was off on maternity leave, so I was in charge. The carpet was thinly striped in maroon and beige, clotted with dust and crud and rusty staples. The walls between the offices and the vault didn't have any tops to them. 
You could bung a penny or a plastic clip right over them. And I have, late at night after everyone's gone home. Every day I felt the city's palpable weight. There was a 10-story building above us, sealing the daylight out like a stamp, but it felt sometimes like 50 stories, 100 stories. I would come out at night almost dazed that the city was so small. In my mind, it all grew to monstrous height above me, rootless and dazzling. The elevator dinged outside the archive's door. Normally at that point, you heard an anxious pup, the sound of somebody turning our gritty steel doorknob, unsure whether the archives can even be in here, in this vinegar-smelling hallway like a conduit for acid, like a long-abandoned part of the body. Elsie treated it with confidence, like staff. But when she was inside, her hands were hesitant. And she looked around the same way most people do at first, slow and wondering, but more up in the look than usual. Our ceiling is low, but people always do look up, as if they're worried about the weight of the city, too. It's hard to remember my first impressions of Elsie, who has become so familiar to me that those memories are all worn away, like stones in a watery cave. First impressions are strange things. I believe in them the way I believe in fortune telling. What then did she pretend? Thank you for reading that. You're very welcome. I haven't, uh, I think I told you it had been about a month since I read through this all the way. And uh, revisiting the beginning was interesting to me because it reminded me, I think your mentor must have been a linguist. That's my professional, my academic background. And a thing is a slow event. (laughs) That is just the definition, just the semantic definition of a thing. (laughs) No, this is one that like... um... The archivist, who, not not the one who taught me to be an archivist, uh, but it is something that my boss has said uh, that her mentor, who was a public historian, told her. Mm. So uh, who knows what what chain of different specialties led from a slow oh, event yeah. to me? But it's mine now. <laughs> I stole it. Well, it's a great line. Congratulations on on your theft. Oh, yeah. I really like the way. I, there's a lot of things that I think this this opening does. Um, obviously, your love of puns is on full display. I never meant to become such a walking stereotype, but I love my work. Uh, preservation of food and of uh, items and of the self. Womp womp. I think it also right, like it really does set the scene well for what what the archives looks and feels like, and how it might be different to somebody who is not just working there, but living there versus somebody who is just coming in for the first time. What's your experience of that when you, when you sort of encounter people bringing in work uh, to the archives for the first time in your real life? It's very interesting because I am a reference librarian, basically. Uh, in, in addition to various other archival duties, I am the person who manages the reading room And when visitors come to do research in the archive, who are all referred to generically as researchers, no matter what they're researching for or if they have a project or if they don't have a project, I always try to let people know that you don't need to have a project to come in there. You just need to want to look at cool old stuff. (laughs) You know, uh, I think that people generally are very apprehensive, whether they are very familiar with archives and archival research, uh, they will still be uncertain what our policies are like, what my personality is going to be. Because the, uh, you know, the archivist in charge of the reading room, their personality really sets the tone. And uh, I can see how, um, you know, if, if theirs doesn't mesh well with yours, even if you are great people with wonderful personalities, it can still end up being an uncomfortable few days because they are sitting there, you know, watching you do your work <laughs> uh, while doing their own work. Every time somebody comes into the archive, uh, a collaboration begins. The same thing is very much true when people come in to do donations, which is not primarily my job, but it is a thing that I do as well. 
Sometimes people are also just apprehensive because they have never worked in archives before, because they don't know what to expect. Often they expect to be uh, gatekept quite forcefully in various ways. We, we try very hard not to do that, although there, there are some limitations uh, on, on what we can and can't allow people to do. Uh, we, we do worry a lot about people bringing bags in in case they steal something, which unfortunately does happen and has happened. Uh, we worry about people bringing liquids into the archives because it's very easy to, of course, destroy paper that way. So the, your goal as an archivist is to welcome people in while making it clear that this is a place that almost has a different physics from other places. It is a place where some things that are totally normal, like having a water bottle, are suddenly not acceptable. And by the same token, where some things that usually are, you know, I, I think crying is very normal, but most of the time people don't do it in public spaces. But in archives, often the, the emotional experience of being there is so overwhelming that people do begin to cry. So it's, uh, it, it, like I said, it's a place where different things are normal and different things are expected from anywhere else in the outside world. And until people are oriented and they know what direction the gravity goes in, they they just are a little bit frazzled. I often am also sometimes a little bit frazzled because that's just what my personality is like. <laughs> so we uh, we find a compromise of frazzlement <laughs> when we begin to work together. That's a good match. Yeah. Join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune in to Intersections Sunday evening at 6, KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author and archivist Isaac Fellman, whose novel Dead Collections follows a transmasculine archivist who also happens to be a vampire. One thing people might not expect from the way we've talked about this book so far and, and from that sort of early description is that it's a, it's a really sexy book. There's, there's a, a lot of sex in it. And yeah. it's hot sex, uh, most of it. Some of it's a little... There's a scene in a... In a film uh, projection room. Which, uh, yeah, uh, speaking of OCD exposure therapy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, which is... characters fucking in that dirty room just makes me break out in hives. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it is it is generally, it's, it's, it's a pretty sexy novel, which has all the trappings of horror in these sort of supernatural elements and that it's a bit dystopian, though it's, as we've discussed, dystopian in fairly mundane ways. But a lot of it is about Saul and Elsie finding each other and falling in love. How do you balance those elements of horror and of romance and weave them together in a way that feels organic? Oh, it's just because they're both incredibly anxiety-making. Uh, again, horror and romance were just a very natural pairing for me because uh, Saul, like me, is... Uh, all, all novels predict the future because they describe undercurrents in the author's life that they may not be aware of, or they would write a personal essay instead. So <laughs> although I was not in love at the time that I wrote this book, I definitely recognized that, uh, you know, there were, there were things about falling in love as a trans person, which I very specifically hadn't done yet, that were going to happen for the first time. And that were, for that reason, going to make me intensely anxious and nervous. And that 
uh, probably I was going to fall in love with another trans person who had their own anxieties about, um, you know, some things that, that we've had to experience for the first time later in life, because as trans people, we didn't go through some of the standard rites of passage of sex and, and romance, um, all of which has totally happened. And, and yeah, it's by the same token that love is anxiety making. I think that in the book also horror is kind of friendly. Uh, the horror in the book, besides coming from HR and besides coming from one's difficult coworkers, is also simply coming from a ghost who wants their life to be described in a way that they can understand and comprehend when the, the ghost, when, when, when they were a living person. I, I've got a lot of feelings about this. Um, there are <laughs> lots of people in this book who are struggling with whether they're trans or not. And I think that the, um, the, the dead person whose archival collection comes in uh, and, and which precipitates the entire story um, and who becomes the ghost that needs help and who was also the spouse of, uh, of, of Elsie, you know, I, I, I think this was a person who was absolutely a trans man and died without ever letting themselves think about it. And uh, they, they took she pronouns while they were alive. They probably would have taken he pronouns if they transitioned. Uh, the they pronoun is very mutable and it can express lots of different kinds of respect. It's kind of what I tend to devolve upon in talking about what Tracy needs after they are dead, which is to sort of have the unrealized aspects of their life seen and understood. And Sol is in a great position to see that because there are many aspects of his life that took a long time to become resolved and that resolved, um, wah, wah, again, <laughs> and um, that in, in some ways are not yet resolved. So again, that collaboration between a living person and a dead person, one of the many collaborations that happens in archives too. So we talked earlier about that, that sort of tension between getting closer to things that you're afraid of and pushing them away. And one of the things that I find interesting in this book is the relationship between, or, or the sort of way that narrativizing things through the archive kind of embodies both sides of that tension, right? It is simultaneously allowing you to get closer to something and to push it away. And in the context of, you know, we, we talked about both having OCD as well, right? Like a lot of the things that we work with in OCD is not narrativizing our thoughts or narrativizing them differently. Right. And of course, right, like writing a novel is creating a narrative. So I'm curious if writing a novel that explores these themes about the sort of way that narrative itself can create both this push and pull, like take us closer and further away, has changed the way that you've thought about the role narrative plays in stories and in your own life. I think that the main thing that I have learned about narrative from writing this book in particular and from thinking the, about the things that are in tension within it is the, the tension also between things that are in the narrative and the things that, that evade it. I think a lot about, not to, I'm absolutely spoiling the end of this book. I believe that many things are better if you spoil them. Um, Saul is able to exorcise the ghost and set uh, the spirit to rest by processing the collection, which means cataloging it, putting it in an order, and writing about it. And one of the things that he does is write a note about um, Tracy's career, that's the, uh, the, the person whose collection it was, that just really eliminates all references to pronouns and gender because he doesn't know. He recognizes that something is unrealized. He has a pretty good sense of what it probably was. 
he has an understanding of what might have caused this person's pain. But and also so much of the book is just about him uh, becoming a little bit less self-absorbed because he is coming out of a period of intense grief that has made self-absorption something that he needs to do to keep going. And now he's doing a little bit better and he can pay more attention to other people's needs again. And so part of paying attention to other people's needs is recognizing that sometimes you don't know what they are unless you ask. And when a person is gone, you simply cannot ask. So that's the thing about archives. I think about them in terms of positive space. I think about them in terms of what they can teach us, what they do have. I feel like I don't think enough still, but this book has taught me to think more about the the many, like the almost inconceivable amount of things that archives cannot tell us, uh, that we we cannot learn even from looking at the subtext in archives or looking at what we think is their negative space, because the whole point of negative space is, you know, at least in a context like this, that uh, you don't even know what its scale is. It's, it's impossible mm. to determine its scale. It's like thinking about the scale of things in the Arctic or on the moon. Is it a humble brag if you brag about something making you more humble? Like that's not literally <laughs> what it is, but I, I feel like I've, I've achieved an inception of humble bragging here. Um, it, it really, it's just everything that you write makes you more aware of what you can do and also more aware of what you can't do. It just changes the ratio. And, and that's one of the things that fascinates me about getting to be in the immensely lucky position of experiencing the career of an artist which is that the the ratio is just, it's just changing throughout your life in ways that you cannot control. And you just, you are continually just sort of chasing after uh, an understanding of what you are trying to do and of your abilities and what you can't do that continually eludes you because it's always changing. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's also a thing about doing literally anything about pursuing any kind of, of, of career or pursuit. Every book that you write just makes you feel a little bit more insane. And <laughs> as a person who, uh, you know, like, um, it, it's, I don't know. There's there's talking about mental illness and there's talking about, like, quote unquote, feeling insane, which is a very different thing from experiencing mental illness, although sometimes there's overlap. Definitely, <laughs> they are both major parts of my life. Thanks, Dead Collections, for for making me ever more baffled. <laughs> well, I think on the note of everything you write makes you a little bit makes you feel a little bit more insane. I, now's a good time to ask, what are you working on now? I am. I, I've got a couple of things in the hopper. Um, I have a book um, on submission right now that is uh, a family saga about um, you know an adoptive and chosen trans family and surviving history, basically li- living in times of doubt and revolution as a trans person. The book that I am writing right now is about polar exploration, which is my has been like my special little obsession for a few years. It, it came out of I'm going to have to start admitting this because th- they're going to ask me what the book is about when I eventually sell it. During during quarantine, I got really obsessed with the show The Terror, which is about the Franklin Expedition, a doomed polar expedition. Mm. And uh, what happened is that like I got into the fandom for this thing, but then. Then I got into the history and I was like, oh, sh- I've got to write a revisionist book that's revisionist in a different way from this thing that I also love. There's room for so much revisionism, like, like Slap's Roof of Franklin Expedition. There's room for so much revisionism in this baby. And so uh, <laughs> I am writing like 
a self-consciously gay and self-consciously Victorian novel about a guy who finds some letters that prove what happened to these people, which in some ways is unknown, and also prove that a lot of queer stuff was going on. It is it is about his experience and, and uh, his sense of what the letters are about evolving throughout his life, right? Yeah. Uh, both taking them as um, as advice that he should or shouldn't do things, as explanations about what things in his life mean, and just having this very personal relationship with history and archives. Yeah, I just I just love pastiching Victorian men. I I'm not sure I can go back. I I just there are so many clauses in these sentences. There are so many. <laughs> it's just it's so fun. It's so sexy. Well, that sounds absolutely delightful. And uh, I I know we had like a brief exchange of, about your research for this. And I do need to tell you that I wrote a book chapter on Martin Frobisher, who was oh yeah he was trying to find the Northwest Passage and didn't. So I'm a big nerd about polar exploration too. And uh, I really oh, look yeah. forward to reading it. <laughs> oh my God, we have so much cool stuff in common. I know, look at that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me on this thing. I know it's too soon to say thank you for having me, but like this is just- I was just so- about to say thank you for joining me. So it's yeah. it's not too soon. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been delightful. And and really, I, I, I loved this book and I look forward to the next one and hopefully we'll have you back for that. Hell yeah. <laughs> you can learn more about Isaac from his website, IsaacFelman.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at Isaac underscore Fellman. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Simmons. He also wrote our theme. 